Let's continue with our sermon series this morning that we are calling Sent. In this series, we are thinking about what it means to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, so the very spirit and presence of Jesus given to us by God to live as his sent people in the world. Uh, The text that we're going to look at this morning is Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to look at verses 1 through 16. I think the worship guide uh, cuts it off at verse 12, but uh, I decided after we printed that that we would go through verse 16. So Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes." Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Before we uh, go more deeply into this passage, let me uh, just take the opportunity to pray for us and ask Jesus, by his Holy Spirit, to teach us. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you are here. We pray now that you would take us into the word of Jesus, that we might see the one who is the word in this passage. We pray that you would reveal his glory to us, regardless of where we find ourselves in the faith at this moment, believing, disbelieving, or unsure of what we believe. We trust that you are able to reach us, that you are able to apply your word to us. And so we pray that you would do that, and we pray that you would do that in order to equip us to live more faithfully as your people when we are sent from this place at the end of the service. We pray for Christ's glory, amen. It was the summer of 2002, so 17 years ago, uh, that I had an experience like I have never had before. And this experience lasted for about one month. Uh, It was right after my college graduation. Uh, I was staying put in Western PA, it's where I uh, went to college, 
for um, a couple months uh, leading up until uh, my wedding uh, with Katie. Um, about a, a few weeks before the wedding, I actually was going to be going out to St. Louis to settle into the apartment in which we were going to be moving into. But all that said, um, I had this uh, period of time while I was staying put in Western PA. And like I said, I had this experience that I never got to have living here in Delaware. And the experience that I got to have involved cicadas, millions of cicadas. Now, why am I talking about cicadas at the beginning of this service? Well, these particular cicadas, they're referred to as brood eight, I think, whatever that means, um, they uh, appear every 17 years. And so guess what? This summer, uh, actually beginning now, the cicadas are beginning to uh, emerge and surface and appear in Western PA. And we have proof because my brother-in-law in Western PA sent uh, a picture of the fir his first sighting yesterday. And maybe you'll be able to see that's not a great picture. See the red eyes? These things are really creepy. Um, but they're beginning to come out. And like I said, every 17 years, this happens. Why? I don't know. I don't understand the science behind it. It's really bizarre. Um, but after 17 years, they begin, to, they, they, they begin to come up from the ground. Um, I forget how many days of warm weather above 65 degrees is needed for this to be, even be a possibility. But they begin to come up from the ground. They hatch. And within a, a couple weeks uh, here, there will be millions of cicadas flying around. It was quite an experience. Constant buzzing every time you step out the door. They, you, know, you have a few fly into living space every once in a while. Um, these things are crazy. Why am I talking about cicadas in relationship to Ephesians 4? Well, because what is remarkable to me is how these cicadas multiply. And after multiplying, how they fill the space around them, how they fill the landscape of Western PA during this one-month period. Now, I think this should go without saying, but um, let me just preface this. Um, we should not be like cicadas. That's not the point of, of the message. Um, these cicadas are actually pretty obnoxious and ugly looking. Um, so we don't want to be obnoxious and ugly to the world. So again, I think that goes without saying, but let me just be clear. But I do think that there's this dynamic behind how these cicadas appear every 17 years um, that shows us something about God's intent that he's built into his creation. God desires for multiplication to happen, and he desires particularly for his people to multiply and fill the space in the world around them. And as we come to Ephesians 4, we obviously have to keep in mind here that there have been three chapters written by the Apostle Paul before this fourth chapter. So he's had a lot to say. He's covered a lot of ground, and we're not, we're gonna, I'm going to do my best to give you a big picture view, but what I want us um, to kind of just realize as we enter into this chapter, these first 16 verses together, is to realize that Jesus wants to fill the world with his presence through his people. Jesus wants to fill the world with his presence through his people. That is the goal of history. It is the goal of redemption. It is the goal of the church. It is God's heart, his goal to fill the world with the presence of Jesus through his people. 
And Ephesians, the letter as a whole, written by the Apostle Paul while in prison, is a big picture overview of how Jesus wants to do this. And what I want us to do together in our time is I want us to step foot into this big picture of Ephesians, this big picture reality of Jesus wanting to fill the world with his presence through his people. And I want to look at it through both an internal and an external lens, all right? So let's begin by looking at this big picture goal of Jesus through the internal lens. Verse 1 is the topic sentence for the remainder of the book of Ephesians. As we come to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians uh, has six chapters. And by the way, the Apostle Paul, when he wrote this letter, did not give chapter headings or anything like that. It's rather, these are provided for us to help uh, us engage more uh, effectively with Scripture. Um, But the first three chapters, the content that was covered in the first three chapters, really represents um, the first part of the letter to the Ephesians. And then beginning with chapter 4, and then chapters 4, 5, and 6, it represents a second part. And here, this verse, verse 1 of chapter 4, is a transitionary sentence. It's making the transition for us. And so Paul writes uh, to communicate this transition, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Have you ever heard me, have you been around long enough to ever hear me say the indicatives precede the imperatives? Uh, It might be new for some of you. I see some of you who have been around a long time shaking your head no, and I thought you got tired of me saying things like this, but I apparently need to pick up the pace and say these things more often. Uh, I'm partially joking, but partially being the key word. Um, If you have just started coming to City Church, maybe you've never heard this before. Um, If you've been around since the beginning of City Church, which is only true of a few people at this point, you might be tired of me saying this, but in the Bible, particularly, I mean, it's true of the whole Bible, but particularly in these letters of the New Testament, this principle holds true. The indicatives always precede the imperatives. And what that means is that before, generally speaking, before we're told what to do, we're always first reminded of what has been done for us. In other words, before we are told how to behave, how to act, we're reminded of who we are in Christ. In other words, we're reminded of our identity. And so here in this first verse of chapter 4, Paul is making a transition from doctrine, from instruction, from theology to more practical living. Now, the reality is is that chapters 4 through 6 are filled with doctrine, teaching, instruction, those kinds of things. But there is now more of an emphasis on, okay, Now that we've covered everything in the first three chapters, what does it look like now to begin to have that shape our lives, to form us as disciples of Jesus, and to live it out in the real world? And so the first half of Ephesians, Paul basically recaps the story of God. He recaps the unfolding of God's story, how God's goal in redemption, how God's goal in history is to bring everything back under the leadership of Jesus Christ. And Jesus, in his life, his death, and especially his resurrection, is victorious. And that represents the first fruits, so to speak, to use a, a, a word from the New Testament, of what Jesus is eventually going to do in all of creation. Jesus is going to restore 
all that has gone wrong. He is going to make beautiful what is currently broken. Paul, in the first three chapters, lays a deep and beautiful gospel foundation. And it's helpful for us to just pause here for a moment. Even for those of us who, it could be that everything I just said is familiar to you. And maybe you're even internally rolling your eyes like, yeah, yeah, I know this stuff, I hear it all the time. But it is still good for us to pause and to take it in. Because if you're like me, which you are, in this way, I am so prone to want to act. I'm so prone to want to do. And sometimes I forget who I am in Jesus. I forget what has already been done for me. And so what happens is that I can often do mission, do ministry for wrong reasons, with the wrong motives. You understand what I'm saying? Because maybe I'm losing sight of who I am in Jesus and how I'm his and how I don't have to earn um, his favor, how I don't have to earn the favor of other people. And so sometimes in forgetting that, I I, I live on mission in an attempt to have Jesus love me more or to impress other people or to prove to myself that I'm faithful. And these are all flawed motives. What Jesus wants for us is for us to engage the world in mission out of love in, in terms of an understanding and an experience and an awareness of the deep love that Jesus has for us, that is safe, that is secure. And we move out into the world from there, not as those who need to um, get loved by others, but because we know that we're loved by our Father in heaven, we are now free to live on mission out of real love for other people. And that last thing I said is important, out of real love for other people, because when we are not getting our love ultimately from our Father in heaven, we need to manipulate and use other people to be loved. And we can do that under the, the umbrella of ministry and mission. This is why this is so important. This has practical implications for how we live our lives. And so this is why Paul has structured the book of Ephesians in the way that he has. He has laid a strong gospel foundation. He has written extensively about Jesus and the implications of Jesus' work on our behalf so that we might be positioned rightly with Jesus and then move out into the world from that right position. Our behavior flows from our identity. That's the point. It's the point that Paul makes throughout this letter and his other letters as well. Now, the other thing that I want you to see here is in this big picture perspective, this big picture overview of the letter to the uh, Ephesians, I want you to see the communal perspective that is here. This is difficult for us, um, and I, I especially... And uh, um, made aware of this difficulty, like for example, when I've traveled to places like West Africa. Um, in, in places like Africa, there's much more of a, an organic and natural communal perspective on things. But here in uh, the U.S., the West as a whole, we are much more individualistic in our approach to life, our approach uh, to Scripture. And I even remember being in seminary classes with uh, particularly students from Asia, um, who I remember them expressing this once in a class. I don't remember the context, but just talking about how a big adjustment for them 
in coming over to study in the States is how individualistic everything is here um, as opposed to the more communal perspective that they come from in their cultures. But there is a communal perspective here. And what I'm talking about is that I, I think for us, we often read the Bible and our immediate point of application, the way that we think about applying is individually. But you have to remember that Paul, and don't get me wrong, obviously there is application to be made to our individual lives, but we want to engage with Scripture faithfully. And Paul wrote this as a letter, not simply to individuals, he wrote it to a church, to followers of Jesus in a particular city. And you begin to see that as you enter into particularly this chapter. Because we see that there are two things that are really at the heart of Jesus as far as this internal lens that we're looking at. And those two things are unity and maturity. Unity and maturity. You notice this um, particularly in verses 1 through, for unity, 1 through 6. After Paul moves on from that um, transitionary statement in verse 1, he then talks about living out our calling with humility and gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You catch all that? These are communal things that Paul has in mind here. What he has in mind is living out the gospel in real relationships with other people. Now, the struggle for us is that, well, I could say it this way. On the one hand, it is much easier in life to live apart from other people, isn't it? I mean, in some ways. But as soon as you enter into a community, whether it's a church, whether it's a club, whether it's, um, you know, whatever and wherever, as soon as you begin to rub shoulders with other people, it gets challenging. It becomes hard. Because not everybody is like you, and that's frustrating, isn't it? I really, if you, the world would be a better place if you were all just like me. I didn't expect that reaction. I'm kidding. Just, I mean, maybe you think I'm serious. I was totally kidding. I don't actually think that, but I live like that, and you do too, don't you? And this is so much of the, the internal struggle of our hearts, because we relate to people so often out of this attitude or approach that it would be so much easier if you were just more like me. Well, that's what the other person is thinking. And so there's an impasse, isn't there? Relationships are hard. And I actually think that this is true, what I'm about to say. Relationships in the church are even harder. Why would I say that? Because I would understand if you react to that and you said, well, this should be easier because we have the Holy Spirit. And that's true. Um, I, I, I would agree that we have the resources at our disposal to engage in relationships and community life more faithfully, but I still think that there's a sense in which relationships in the church are harder. Why? Because I think that we have higher expectations. Right, right, on the one hand, rightfully so. We expect more faithfulness from people in the church. We expect that people are living in light of these verses in Ephesians 4, don't we? And so we have a higher expectation. 
Now, on the other hand, sometimes our expectations are naive because we forget that people don't have it all together. And we sometimes act as hypocrites because we sometimes hold others to a standard in the church that we don't even hold ourselves to. And also, when relationships are wounded, when we encounter conflict and struggle, I think in the, in the context of the church, sometimes that hurt and woundedness can go even deeper because of those expectations and because we think that we should be loved better or we should love better. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? And so the church is a really messy place. I, I knew that this was true before planting or starting City Church. I had served as an assistant pastor. Um, and as an assistant pastor, I knew probably about everything that was going on in the life of the church. But it was totally different because the buck didn't stop with me. And I, and I knew at some point I was going to be going out to start a church. It was like, so ultimately, this is, this is not my problem. I, I didn't really approach it that way, but that's kind of what it was. Well, you know, now that I'm the pastor of a church, like I'm in this for the long haul with you, and I hope you're in this for the long haul. And man, would I have started the church had I known how messy it would be? Probably, probably, uh, because of the faithfulness of Jesus and his calling on my life. But relationships are messy, and that holds true for life in the church. And Paul knows that. I mean, what we're talking about is not something specific to church today or city church in particular. If you read the letters of the New Testament, you walk away thinking, wow, we're doing pretty good. Like, we're an amazing church. Like, compared to Corinth, for example, the church in Corinth, wow, we have a lot of things going, going well. It's true of all human history. Relationships are messy, and Paul knows this, and this is why he drives, as he makes this transition all right, here's all this beautiful, good, rich theology, and he makes this transition into practical application. He begins with the communal lens. It's as though he's saying, all right, you know, probably many of you, as you hear this letter read in your community, you're shouting out amen to all this theology, but all right, let's now flesh it out. Let's make it real, and we got to begin with the relationships, inevitably, because Jesus calls us not to follow him just simply individually or in isolation from others, but with and alongside of others. And so that's why Paul immediately gets into humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. All of these things require you to be in relationships with other people to practice, right? Humility, patience, bearing with one another in love, all of these things are so hard on a daily basis. And they're so demanding. And it's constantly coming, isn't it? And what I mean is that um, relationships are relentless. You know, I, I'm, I'm surprised, I'm not surprised, but another thing I've learned in ministry is how easy it can be um, to hurt and offend others. Not because others are so sensitive, although I mean, sure, that could be the case sometimes, but because, like I, for example, for one, I'll speak for myself, I have so many blind spots. And there are plenty of times in my life and ministry where I feel like it may be better for me to not go deeper into relationship with people for their own sanity and for their own safety. Have you ever felt that way? But it's relentless. The pursuit of growing, and we're going to talk about maturity in a moment, the pursuit of maturity requires community. 
It requires community. It requires hard stuff constantly. And may I say that it actually is an indication of Jesus' love for us, that he gives us one another. He gives us people who are entirely different from us. He gives us one another um, that we offend each other, that we frustrate each other, that we don't always bear in love with one another. He actually gives these things to us as an indication of his love because he wants maturity for us and he knows that we have to walk through hard relational dynamics to become more like him. And so what he's getting after, what he's after here is unity. Unity, because after talking about um, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, he mentions maintaining the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And he says there's one body, one Spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And so Paul's appeal, the, the basis of his appeal for unity is this sevenfold confession of these unifying realities of faith, those that I just, all those one things that I, just, that I just read. One hope, one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. His argument, one. As God's people, we are meant to be one. We must fight to maintain unity in the bond of peace. And I think that word fight is appropriate. Because relation, relationships and relational dynamics are so hard and messy, we have to fight for one another, for each other's dignity, but also ultimately for the glory of God, because that's the background for all of this. The background for all of this is the glory of God, that God might really be known, and not just by us who are already in the church, but by the world, by those we're seeking to reach. And that does not mean that we obviously pretend to have it all together, that we act like everything is okay when it's not. But the question is this, are we loving one another? Are we fighting for one another in love to maintain unity in the bond of peace? The verbs that Paul uses here um, speak of urgency, haste, a sense of crisis almost. This is so important, Paul says, and it makes sense because what does Jesus say in the Gospels? How, how will the world know that Jesus was really sent by the Father? Anyone know? By our love for one another. So the effectiveness, the faithfulness of our mission to the world actually requires an inward focus to begin with. It requires us to bear with one another in love, to fight for each other's dignity, to maintain the unity of spirit. This is urgent. This is a, a, a crisis, in a sense, for the Apostle Paul. It all begins here. The mission of Jesus in the world depends on it. But what's encouraging here is that it is the Spirit, Jesus' presence, His Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that creates this unity. We don't create it takes a lot of pressure off of us. We're called to maintain it. You see the difference? We don't create this unity. The Spirit creates the unity, but we walk in step with the Spirit alongside one another in order to do whatever it takes to maintain the unity. Maturity. This is something else that Paul has 
in view here. So unity in the faith, but also maturity in the faith. And by the way, if you like to take notes and you're wondering where we are, this is under that inward, inward lens that we're looking at. And under that inward lens, we're concentrating on unity and maturity. Maturity in the faith. I, I love where Paul goes from here. So we're going we're gonna to come back to verse um, 7 and, and 9 in a, in a moment, talking about how Jesus gives the church uh, gifts. Um, but if you look at verse 12, so he talks about after how Jesus gives the, uh, the church gifts, including apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, what is the purpose for which Jesus gives those um, offices or those roles to the church? For the work of ministry, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. And then here we go. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature, stature of the fullness of Christ. Maturity. Spiritual maturity. What is spiritual maturity? How do we define spiritual maturity? Greater Christ-likeness. How do we know if we are maturing in the faith? We are becoming more like Jesus. How do we assess that? Well, we certainly can do assessment of our own life. That's good and important. But guess what? We're back to the communal lens here. We need the input of other people. And it's not even always the input of other people. Sometimes it's literally just their physical presence in our lives. And it's us recognizing uh, the sinful uh, tendencies of our own hearts. Like when we get frustrated with other people, when they, um, we want them to be like us, as we talked about, they're indications for us that we have plenty of room to grow. So do you see, again, how... The, the, we, we need community to actually grow to be more like Jesus. But spiritual maturity equals greater Christ-likeness. That's Paul's whole argument here. His desire for us is that we would grow up. And um, I, I think this is really appropriate for us where we are uh, as a church in our history. We're nine years in, right? Um, we're still really young, all things considered, uh, in terms of our history. But this is um, an opportune time for us to begin to grow up, to really pursue maturity. Uh, two weeks ago, I think it may have been last week, I think it was two weeks ago, I talked a little bit about how when we first started, we had this, um, I, I think, appropriate and important focus on mission. But I think what happened over the years is that uh, we maintained that focus while overlooking um, discipleship and spiritual formation. Now, I'm going to bring all of those things together, so hopefully you don't see like this false uh, artificial line uh, between the two by the end of this sermon. But I do think that it's true in some sense that we began to focus so much on the outward that we overlooked the inward. And so we were accelerating in terms of living on mission, but not growing up in Christ in uh, certain real and important ways. And so this word for us is good this morning. This word from the Apostle Paul, grow up. And I'm not saying, don't read into what I'm saying. We don't have some crisis going on uh, in the church. Um, but I think it's an opportune time for us to grow up, to grow up in Jesus, 
into maturity, to really want to be serious about living as a follower of Jesus, to receive what Jesus has done for us in the gospel, but to engage with all of these uh, dynamics of our heart. And this requires stuff that we talk about from time to time. Um, It requires us to own our story, meaning that we um, are willing to engage with our past, um, our, our, the ways in which we have sinned and been sinned against, um, the ways in which we have been wounded and um, keep us from really loving Jesus faithfully and loving others. Like we have to work through all of this and, re- and apply the good news of Jesus to these things. And this is hard work. All of this is hard, 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 right? How many times have I said that? But it's good. It's beautiful. And it's what helps lead toward maturity. And so Paul basically says, grow up. Grow up into Christ who is the head of the body. You see, Jesus is with us in this. As I said, he is the one who creates the unity by his spirit. And he is with us as we seek to maintain it. Let's finally talk about this external lens now. I want to go back to Ephesians chapter 1. So if you have a Bible with you, uh, I just want to refer back to this quick verse, chapter 22. In chapter 1 especially, Paul is painting the big story overview of God's story of redemption and how he wants to bring all things under Christ. And in verse 22, it says that he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now let's go back to chapter 4, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, and then Paul quotes Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Did you catch that phrase again? The connection between Ephesians 4 verse 10 and Ephesians 1 verse 22. The goal of redemption is for Jesus to fill all things with his presence. So I want you to think of those cicadas again. I know it's a terrible analogy, because we don't want to be like the cicadas. They're ugly and obnoxious. But still, the dynamic of their multiplication and them filling the space of the landscape around them is what Jesus desires for his presence. And how does that happen? Through his body. Not his physical body, but the church, the community. We are the body of Jesus. And so Jesus desires to fill the spaces in our communities, the landscapes in the world around us, through us, his presence at work in us. But Jesus gives us gifts to be able to do that. Grace, verse 7, was given each, to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. And so I want to shift your perspective now a little bit. We talked about how hard community life is, but now I want you to think about how beautiful community life is. Um, we need each other. We need each other to grow into maturity, as we talked about, but we need each other for the mission. 
Because you have gifts that I don't have. You have a personality that I don't have. And what Jesus does in the life of the church is he, he brings all of these things together. And because he is the, the creator of the unity by his spirit, he's able to orchestrate a beautiful thing, even though it doesn't always feel beautiful. We need each other. Yes, that person that maybe you're thinking of that annoys you and frustrates you, the reality is, is that they bring gifts to the community that you desperately need to help you grow in maturity in Jesus. I love how it, it, it's rooted in grace. It was the grace of Jesus to give each of us a variety of gifts. And this quotation of Psalm uh, 68, it gets confusing there, doesn't it? Because talking about ascending, descending, it's like, what is going on here? We're moving in all different directions. Well, really just up and down. It's not that many directions, but what, what, what's going on here? Well, it's talking about the victory of Jesus. So after the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus in a real sense conquered sin, death, and evil. And then he ascended into heaven. But because he's so gracious and generous, he gives gifts to his people. And so he ascends on high in his ascension. And it's this picture of the spoils after a victory. And Jesus doesn't just keep all of these spoils that, he, that are rightfully his through his resurrection, but he shares them with us. It's as though he says to us, I did it. I conquered sin. I conquered the grave. And I'm going to share with you now all the spoils of my victory. I'm going to give them to you, my people that I deeply love. I'm going to equip and empower you so that you can do the unthinkable, which is to actually invade the spaces around you with my presence. And so the descending, there are different interpretations of this, but I take it to mean to refer to his incarnation, that is God in the person of Jesus taking on human form, descends into the world and lives among us, and then he ascends in his ascension as we talked about. What is the goal? What is the goal of all of this? Verse 10, again, that he might fill all things. How much do we long for the glory of God to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, to quote one of the prophets. How much do we long for the presence of Jesus to fill the spaces in our communities? How much do we yearn for where there is brokenness for there to be beauty? How much do we long for people to know Jesus and his presence in their own lives? And, and how does that happen? How does that practically happen? And, and this is, we come back to this point, which is so basic in a sense in the passage, but I think is so remarkable and profound through us. I know it's ridiculous uh, for us to think about this. Wait, Jesus, you want your glory, the beauty of your presence to, to fill the spaces in our communities through us? Yes, through us. It requires faith not in ourselves, but in actually Jesus and his promise. And so many of you are in really hard spaces right now. You're in really hard spaces of, of life out there in your communities, and you're trying hard to be faithful to Jesus, but it's hard. Maybe you feel like you're, um, people are working against you. 
in different ways, or maybe just the relational dynamics are so strong and, and so difficult that you want to step out of that space. But let me encourage you with this. Jesus has you in the space that he has you because you are needed there. He has made you for that space, and he has given you gifts. He's given you gifts to equip and empower you to minister faithfully in that space. Now, it does not mean that it's going to be easy, but it is an opportunity for you to grow up into Jesus, to learn dependency on him, to learn to trust him in ways that you never have before, to really lean into that spirit that is yours through Jesus. Something that, um, as we wrap up, is always challenging to me in this passage is where Paul in verse 11 talks about how Jesus gave the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. Um, for what purpose? To equip the saints for the work of ministry. Sometimes my... Um, my, one of my problems is that I think that I'm supposed to do the work of the ministry for everybody else. And sometimes I, I think I relate to uh, staff members and elders or whomever it might be uh, with the expectation that we're required to do the work of ministry for others. But that is actually op the opposite of what Jesus calls us as church leaders to. Essentially, Paul is saying Jesus gave the church, church leaders, so that they might equip the saints for the mission. That is, at the end of the day, my calling and the calling of uh, staff members, the calling of elders. It is to equip disciples of Jesus for ministry, for mission. Why? Because it's not simply about this Sunday gathering. This Sunday worship gathering is critical. We absolutely need it in the rhythm of life. But we as a church are called to equip and empower each other and others so that they might be sent out into the spaces in our community so that we might fill them with the presence of Jesus. Now, we need a Sunday worship gathering because that's part of the being equipped and the being empowered by the Spirit and being sent out. But what would change if we began to view the everyday stuff of life as the spaces in which Jesus desires for us to make his presence known. And what this means for us uh, as a church is that we need to become clear on how we measure fruitfulness and effectiveness, how we measure success. Uh, it's so easy to try to do that uh, according to attendance and things like that, but those are not the proper metrics to use. The proper metrics are maturity in Jesus and also people who are being sent out. And this, is, this idea of being sent out scares me because what if Jesus sends some of you out to other places, other cities, and you have to leave City Church? That's happened. It happens in the life of a church. Um, you know, I, I remember... Um, I remember maybe two years ago, sitting down with Wes Garnett. Some of you don't even remember Wes now, but he was a pastoral intern. Uh, he and his wife moved to uh, Madison, Wisconsin, where they uh, currently live. And they had been there for at least two years. Um, 
And one of the, the times that he came back around Christmas time, I got together with him, and he was telling me about how he's, um, they joined a, a church plan. He was telling me how he's really helping the pastor think through community groups that have a similar model to what we um, want to have here at City Church. And he's sharing about his experiences and his knowledge. And I'm thinking, man, this isn't fair. I taught you all that. It's, it's not really about me, but I, I did feel that a little bit out in the moment. It's like, this church out in Wisconsin, this pastor is literally benefiting from the time and energy investment I made into West and the money that we spent as a church to send West to trainings and conferences. But what actually, if that is a metric of success, that we're sending people out that are filling spaces, maybe not in our city, but they're being sent out elsewhere. I remember when we sent out um, Robbie Schmidtberger. I mean, when he came on staff as a church planning resident, we knew we'd be sending him out. I just didn't know we'd be sending him out with about 10 of our own people. And so, you know, I have to stand up here and commission them and pray for them. But in my own heart, to be honest, probably like some of you, I'm thinking, this is 10 people. Like, I want to keep them kind of. But no, what if that's a metric of success? Now, obviously, there's a balance. We can't just keep sending, 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 sending to a point we don't have anyone left. So, of course, there's a balance. But these things belong together. We pursue the internal lens, right? We look, at, we look at life through the internal lens and pursue unity and maturity. But that um, unity and maturity, guess what it naturally, organically leads to, biblically? Sent lives. The presence of Jesus filling the spaces in our communities through people like us. Let's pray. Jesus, we really do want to be faithful to your mission And so we pray that you would help us to attain deeper unity and maturity. We take encouragement from the fact that you are the one who creates this unity. And we pray that we would use the gifts that you have given us to maintain that unity. We pray that you would help us to grow up as a church, to grow up into Jesus, who is the head, who is our head. We pray that you would give us a deeper awareness of his presence in our lives, that you would help us to do the hard work of applying his good work on our behalf to our lives, both individually, but also uh, to our community life. And we pray that you would help us to be faithful, to live as your sent people who are maturing, who are multiplying and filling the spaces of our city. That is our longing, Jesus. Our longing is that our city, that our region might be filled with your presence. Do that for your glory and for our good. We pray in Christ's name, amen.